Welcome to the Musquamacan Beach Podcast, a podcast spotlighting the businesses, newsmakers, events, and memories of Rhode Island's historic Musquamacan Beach. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Musquamacan Beach Podcast. I'm your host and one of the producers of the show, Ben Barber. Today with me, we have the first of our new series that we're going to be doing, which is Memories of Musquamacan, and I am fortunate enough today to be joined by Mike Murray and Chris Walsh, um, who have many accolades that we can talk about at a later date, but today we are specifically talking about their time as DJs at Musquamacan Beach for the Atlantis Nightclub. Is that correct? Well, that's... Pretty close. Okay. Atlantis 2, the party paradise by the sea, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of other clubs down there, too, that we worked at, so. Awesome. Got to so, mention those. So what right. time period was this? Not to date you guys, but. Well, uh, Mike, I, I think you should start off because you actually were a DJ before me. So I came down with a bunch of friends in 1979 and saw this great club that was mobbed on the beach, and I said, I want to work there. So the next year, 1980, uh, prior to the season, like in March or, or April, I, uh, I tracked down Jimmy Caulfield, who was the manager at the time, and I was send him tapes or say hi to him, and finally I got a meeting with him face-to-face, and I said, I'm not going to wait for him to listen to any of my tapes. I actually brought a radio in and played a tape for him and described, now this is one song, it's mixing into another song. <laughs> in fact, that's that the early days of beat mixing, and in the office we had talked for about an hour, and... He said, can you come back next weekend and work? And I was like, yeah, I did it, you know, and it was great. It was a, and Mike Magellan was the other DJ here. Mike Michelli, yes. Michelli? Mike Michelli, yes. Yeah, he's, uh, he's actually, uh, he does some stuff still in radio in, in the area. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I, I heard him on the air, and I don't remember what station it was. But All right, was well, great. I'll look that up as we go along <laughs> and, and uh, fact check you. Um, so, Chris, how did you get your start? Well, I actually was working uh, uh, back at that, around that same time at a hamburger joint right next door to the Atlantis. And I used to hear the music playing over there. My brother, actually, my brother Mike, ran the hamburger joint. He rented out the place and then, uh, you know, he ran that joint next door. Wow. It was a fun little hangout, uh, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs and all sorts of great beach food. Um, but I'd, I'd stand on the patio of, of this hamburger joint and hear that music on a Sunday afternoon next door and wonder, why are there so many people over there dancing on a Sunday afternoon? So I used to go in there and peek in the window, and, and Mike was DJing. And uh, I'll never forget when I heard him mix one song into the other. I, he was playing a song that I really, really liked. Then all of a sudden, it was into the other song, and I didn't realize what happened. And I thought, and the crowd went crazy. And I was like, what the heck just happened? How did he do that? And I started learning that he was mixing records, and the crowd was loving it. And I became infatuated with it. I, I said, I have to really know how to do this. So I used to just hang out there. I ended up getting a job as a doorman. You were? I was working at the door, and I was like, I was skinny. I, I didn't belong being a doorman, but... <laughs> Everybody else was buff. And they were all monster, big bodybuilders, and skinny <laughs> me. Uh, but I, I, got, I remember working at the front door, which was right by the DJ booth, so I could always open the door and talk to Mike and ask him a question about the song he's playing and how he mixed it and, and so on. He taught me about what he would call 32s. Every song has 32 beats in a verse. Um, so I became really interested in just the art of mixing records in a nightclub. 
Yeah, beat, yeah. Mi- beat mixing is a science. It's um, it's definitely you know you you gotta know. It's not just. Uh, I, I mean, I assume that a lot of it is feeling it. Um, once you once you know it what is. you're looking for, but um, if you don't know the numbers and what what you're looking for, then it's it's going to be a sloppy mess. It's true, and knowing when to mix, you know, uh, uh, you know, songs usually have a good you know, a good nice intro, and then. Uh, uh, you know, the, it goes through the song, and then there'll be a break, and you might want to mix in that break, or you might want to mix in the last break. So feeling the crowd and learning exactly what to do, when to do it, is really important. And, it, and the, the cool thing, I guess now it's nostalgic, nostalgically cool, <clears throat> is what we used to use records. And, and I, I'm sounding like an old dude, but the kids nowadays, yeah. they have all, <laughs> all, these, all these tools that they uh, just... You know, they have everything. It tells them what beat per minute is. We used to have to take a watch and count it, what beat per minute it is. And, and we take a pitch pipe and determine what key it was. And we'd write it on top of the, on the album, on and, the album cover. It's, and, it's 110 beats a minute and the key of C or whatever. And that's important because if, you, if you're mixing a, a key of C into another key of C, it's, it's a beautiful combination. And it, people just don't know what's hitting them. And there's nothing better than, and you know you did a good job because they, when they would scream, you knew that exactly. it was... You'd get a scream. You'd go in from one song, to, and the crowd would just scream and go crazy. It was, it was intoxicating to see that. I have to tell you the truth. Absolutely was. And being in control of that, that any moment you could slow it down if you wanted to, or you could make people run to the dance floor. Um, and, and many times we've, we've all had them as DJs, and DJs still, to this day, you still hear it, have, uh, we, we used to call them train wrecks, and I think that terminology is still there. Oh, yeah. Where... You'd start the mix, and then it, it would go off beat or something, and all of a sudden it got dunk, 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 and people. And we used to describe it as people tripping on the dance floor, killing themselves, trying to get, trying to get off the dance floor. Well, your it, bad mix is, is oh, noticeable. Yeah, good yeah. mixes aren't noticeable. Bad mixes, and a lot of times, if I would do a bad mix, I usually would hand him the headphones and duck down, <laughs> yeah. uh, so that everyone would look up and see him standing there. So, so many times. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, even a nightclub being in Musquamakit seems like. A little bit of a, um, of a of a different feel from the family friendly Musquamica Beach of today. So, can you just give me a little bit of um, what were nights like in the eighties on the beach? Uh, you know, you don't have to tell me where the bodies are buried or anything, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I the look I, of trepidation in both of your faces <laughs> by this question honestly l- lets me know that there's some really good stories here. There really is. There really is. Um, there were there were three nightclubs back then. You know, right together. They were all the same ownership. I think the Atlantis, uh, the Blue Sands, and and uh, and the Wreck, and the Wreck, and and uh, all had entertainment. And it was just a place to go. I mean, I know I used to work during the during the week as a DJ up in uh, Springfield and Enfield, Connecticut area up up north, and saying to people, "I'll see you on the weekend. I'll see you Sunday at the Atlantis or whatever." And they're like, "Yeah." I yeah. mean, people just came from all over the place to come to this location. It was amazing. And it was, it was a little crazier back then, definitely a little crazier. Uh, I remember there used to be uh, a paddy wagon just parked in, in, in the middle of Atlantic Ave. And, uh, you know, they would fill that up. A couple know, times maybe, a night. <laughs> yeah, a couple times a night. And when it filled up, they'd take it off to, to the jail and they'd come back and park it there again. And people would just get thrown in there. It was, it was, it was a crazy place. I didn't start going to the uh, beach area until I was probably 17 or 18 because my mother just didn't want me down there because it was kind of a crazy place. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I didn't get to experience that when I was really young. But when I was 17 or 18, we, 
we I saw there was a lot of craziness going on down there for there sure. Was. It was definitely the place to be, and um, with the, the drinking and the drugs back in the eighties, it was just it was crazy. And unfortunately, that's what led to the parking lots that you see now there, uh, underlying the drugs. Yeah. So where were the um, where where was the Atlantis? The Atlantis was right uh, uh, across, pretty much across the street from the um, the Mesquamicut, uh information booth. It was uh, across the street, and in, in that whole area, the Blue Sands was in that area. Well, I believe the Blue Sands is where the drive-in is right now. Okay. And then uh, uh, right next to the, across the street was the Atlantis, and next to that was the wreck, which was, ended up being, when I tried to get into the Atlantis and I wanted to work, I ended up getting pushed into the wreck and had to play rock and roll uh, as a DJ at the wreck. <laughs> try to mix it. And I, I tried, yeah, you can't mix rock and roll that well, so... So I had a different kind of a crowd over there, and I wanted to go where his crowd was because that's where, that's where all the, uh, the cool people were. I was with the bikers, but it was fun. I had a great time. Oh, yeah. I, I have to say it was a lot of fun, but occasionally I would get to play a dancey type record. So he, I would go, we'd write notes to each other next to, hey, I want to borrow this record. And occasionally he would even play a rock and roll song and borrow one of my records. So it was kind of fun. And as always, he always sent over a, a really pretty girl. <laughs> To, to deliver the record. Thanks. That's not true. <laughs> well, a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, like, how many people are we talking um, would be in one of these clubs on any given night? It seemed like it was always jammed to me. Uh, I think the place probably legally held maybe 400. And, you know, without the fire marshal being at the front door, I'm, I'm guessing more than that. I mean, 500? Yeah, I mean... Jam-packed. For you to get from one like, end, from you to get to, from from the bathroom, which is way in the back, to the front, which which I call the front, the beach, to the it, beach, it would take, take you, you like a, twenty minutes. There was definitely some laws being broken uh, <laughs> with attendance. I think the statute of limitations. Is, I mean, they're uh, gone. Yeah, anyway. I can say that now. Yeah, yeah. I can say that. Lots, so I mean, yeah. I guess we can. Oh yeah, no, there was definitely uh, as far as attendance. Uh, the fi- I mean, I don't know how they got away with that many people. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's surprising considering that there was a police officer parked outside. And a line going out the door going down the staircase. It used to climb up the staircase to get into (laughs) the Atlantis because there was a a downstairs as well that was kind of a quieter type bar with with some food and... So okay. and the sea shanty too was on the other side of the wreck. I think that was is that that's not the sea shanty was on the other side. It's not there either. No, it's all parking lot now. Wow. All right, and of course the drive-in, which is. Which is a huge part of current day Musquamica Beach. Yeah. Um, so what, like, if you if what is the one specific craziest memory that like every time somebody says, "Hey, remember the '80s in Musquamica at the nightclubs?" What what's the what's like the one thing that you're like, "Oh, this was crazy." If you can tell it. Well, I can say. I mean, I, to me, I mean. I mean, the, probably the funnest time to work at the Atlantis would have been Sunday afternoon, Absolutely. would you say? Absolutely. I don't think it gets any crazy. Oh, that's surprising <clears throat> to me. Sunday afternoon, or- probably 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, people have been having a couple of drinks on the beach, and there's something about the sun and liquor that just does something to people, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the, well, the, I, think, I think it was like three thirty, four o'clock. We would turn the, the speakers that we had mounted on the on the deck of the Atlantis, pointing out at the beach, and we crank it up, and we get on the microphone and say, "All right, everybody, 
the sun is going down, come on in, and within you know half an hour, 45 minutes, you have a full dance floor, bar, people just in bikinis bathing and bathing suits, suits. Oiled bodies. Uh, just, that uh, was oh. the, we used to fight on who would work Sunday afternoon. That was the best day of the week to it work. Was, it was by far the best. It was definitely the best. I mean, you could have played, you know, and I think we did play Frank Sinatra, and they'd still dance. Not that Frank Sinatra's bad, but I'm just no, saying, I in a dance club, it's not, you know, the best. They just seemed to get into everything. Yeah, no matter what you did, it was just amazing. And uh, it was a DJ's dream. And I know other DJs from clubs would come down you know, on a Sunday afternoon, man, you got it made here. Look at that, da, da, whatever. You know, it was, it was great. It was great. And Jimmy Caulfield, I got to give him credit. He really, he really knew what he was doing down there at the time. Absolutely. I mean, he really got the, he got the best sound system. I remember the speakers, clips, clips yep. speakers that were just like ridiculously, beautifully sounding. Best sound they, system I ever worked on. Yeah, it was sure. just crisp and clean. And uh, the light show above the dance floor was just, it was State of the art back then. Now it's, it, yeah, you know, it's, whatever. It's, but. Yeah, but back then it was, it was fantastic. Stainless it was just, steel dance floor. Uh, different Multi-level levels. dance floor. It was like different levels. But the floor was actually stainless steel. And it was sunken. Yeah. So you'd go down on the dance floor, but you'd go up on a level, and it was fantastic. It's so cool. All right, this entire show is just making me sad that I'm not able to experience <laughs> this, or at least just go in and see it as it was. Um, how long were you there? Uh, I, uh, both of you individually. I I started eighty nineteen eighty, and I think to eighty nine. I, I mean, I got married and <laughs> worked less and less. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was it's pretty much the same. I think I, uh, yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, me too. Uh, I he started a little bit before me, but I kind of hopped in and did the. You know, I did not only the Atlantis, but the wreck, and then across the street there was a uh, near the probably mid eighties. I don't remember exactly. Maybe the mid to late eighties. They they had a. Uh, a kids club they called turned a, the L.A. Beach Club. It was. It was the. Blue do you remember Sands. that? No, I, I no 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 no. I was oh, you look like oh yeah, I used to go there. I was <laughs> born in '87. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> oh god. All right. Hey, I'm, I'm 30. Don't. That's painful. Uh, but, um, a kids club. So what is so like an all ages all ages uh, club, but where you can go in there and you just you just dance the night just away. Same exact thing, but Sodas, no alcohol. You know. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Same exact thing, and it. It was jammed. It was packed. It was fantastic. Had yep. such a great time there. Worked for Jimmy's brother at the time. Jimmy's brother used to run that place, uh, Johnny Caulfield. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just a, a fantastic time. Yep. Uh, you know, nothing better than having a crowd that appreciates music and, and gets into it. And, you know, they, 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 it was just fantastic. Awesome. What was it like when – so how, how far after do you know um, – how far after you guys left, which was both around, you know, the turn of the decade into the 90s, uh, how long was it until those places shut down? You know, I don't know. It kind of caught me by surprise because I, w- you went back to, you know, uh, Connecticut. Right. I went, I moved to Connecticut because it was because of uh, the DJing that we did down here. We ended up having a career that brought us into radio after that uh, for many, many years. Um, so I, I think it snuck up on us down here. I remember I'd, every time I'd come back to Westerly, I'd come back once every couple of weeks to visit the family. Something always changed in Westerly. They built, put up a building here. They tore down a building there. But I never really followed what was going on down the beach. And I remember the last time I went to the Atlantis, it was kind of quiet. It, it had changed quite a bit. It wasn't packed on a Saturday night. Um, and the next year, I, I heard that it got torn down. And I went down there, and I saw you know some scraps of wood, 
and I grabbed a piece of wood with some blue on it, and I Did took you? it home. That's I awesome. still have it at home. Uh, it's just a broken piece of wood, but I knew it was from the Atlantis, and it just it held a piece of my heart. I, as That's queer awesome. as that is, it's, it's down my cellar right now. So I forget what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. You answered it. Uh, Mike, what about you? What was your last, um, you know, sort of memories about the Atlantis and the, and the rest of the clubs? I think the last thing I can remember is, I believe it was Labor Day that I, I worked. And um, DJ, that Labor Day, it was like a Sunday, but it was a, a holiday. And uh, the whole same thing, people came in off the beach and whatnot. And it was packed. And I remember staying down here and waking up the next day and driving down to down the beach and there was people putting plywood up on the windows and uh, of different you know different businesses along along Atlantic Avenue and it was it was sad it was like I remember Mark Sullivan writing a little short story about the day after Labor Day and talking about tumbleweeds going down Atlantic Avenue and things like that it's really that's how it really is it, the summer is over boom period and that's that's how I, re- I remember it. And then a few years down the road, I remember Chris telling me that um, that uh, they're bulldozing the buildings down. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's uh, it was it blew my mind. Did the club stay open year round back then? No, or no, but the okay. the wreck actually did. The wreck stayed open in the winter. And, oh wow! And and it and it stayed active in the winter. I can remember Wednesday nights at the wreck uh, was beat the clock night. From 8 to 9, drinks are 25 cents. From 9 to 10, they're 50 cents. From 10 to 11, oh, yeah. they're 75 cents. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Did bring, you have to give that spiel? Bring your car. Or did did yeah, you have we, to, like, over the microphone? Yes, yes we'd, we'd have to talk about it. I was more, I, I, you know, I didn't, I DJed near the end of that whole craziness as well, too. I went down there as a, as a customer uh, most of the time. Uh, that was going Trying on. Trying to beat the clock. <laughs> Trying, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was like a four dollar admission, and then you then you'd get those those drink specials. But it was crazy. You don't hear that anymore, do you? No, you can't. I don't even think that's legal anymore. No. All right, so uh, the DJing at the clubs obviously got your foot in the door to DJing and to careers um, in this field. So, uh, how did that happen? What did you guys go on to do? Um, I know you both went on to radio and syndication and stuff. So, well, yeah, I mean, what what ended up happening for me, I can remember. Uh, we we got I got a job in Connecticut. Uh, Mikey was DJing different clubs. I was DJing different clubs, and I happened to be working in a club in East Hartford, Connecticut, at the time called El Torito. It was a Mexican restaurant, but it had a really beautiful little dance club on one side. It was a great little club, and uh, a new radio station just went on the air. And they had their Super Bowl party at El Torito back in 1986, I believe, 85 or 86. And the Patriots were in the Super Bowl, their first Super Bowl, playing the uh, Chicago Bears. Chicago Bears. And this new radio station was coming into my club and having a Super Bowl party there. And I remember uh, trying to talk them into the owner, Tim Montgomery. I said, hey, you guys have got to do a mix show on the air. They had a thing called the Kiss Club at the time, but they weren't mixing the records. And I said, turn it into a nightclub show. Yeah, yeah, they, they weren't sure of it. I did what Mike did. I remember making a tape, giving it to them. They never got back to me. Made another tape, gave it to them. They didn't get back to me. And one day I did the same thing you did. I sat on the couch at Kiss and said, I'm not leaving until I speak to the owner. 
And the owner and the program director took me in the office and said, uh, all right, we're going to give this a shot. And um, uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, they said they're going to give me $50 a night. Uh, and I was making like at the time 150 a night at the club that I was working in. So I had to make up my mind right then and there. What am I going to do? And I ended up dropping the club and going to the radio station because I knew that that was going to be the better thing to do. And uh, long story short is we did the show and the show became a, a, I remember they called me into the radio station about two months after I started doing the show. And they said, uh, we just want to let you know that your, your Kiss Club is the, the number one ranked show on our radio station, they said. We have your number one, and I didn't know anything about ratings. They said, you're number one with women, 18 to 34. And I said, well, that's great. I, I don't know what that means. That's our, that was their target <laughs> audience that they wanted to reach. They ended up changing the format of the station to go around to, to turn it more dancey because it was so successful. And we finally competed with and eventually beat our rival uh, TIC, which no one thought that we could do. Um, and we had some great program. I worked with uh, uh, Jefferson Ward, was one of the program directors there. Fantastic guy. Um, just helped build that station up to what it is. And that ended up, um, the show became so successful that I, Mike, after all the things that he had done for me, getting me into this business, I said, hey, Mike, let's, let's work together and do this show on a bigger scale. Maybe we can package this show up and sell it to other radio stations. So we got together and, and put our brains together and created a show called Supermix. And tell them, you kind of took care of a lot of the uh, business end of this whole thing. Yeah, Supermix, we started off with uh, um, Japan. I don't know how we got it, but we got a station in Japan to take our show from us. And the hard thing about that was there was no internet back then. There was no CDs back then. Uh, We did everything on reel-to-reel, and it was a four-hour mix show with local breaks for commercials and whatnot. But we would give them four 10-inch reel-to-reels every week. And we'd send it out in the mail and hope it got there in time. And it just, um, it, it ended up working out great. Um, and then from there, we, we hooked up with a, a company in New York that got, a, got our... But uh, even before that, we got one of our big breaks was when we got, I remember getting the call from, because uh, we were pumping it out. We, we, made, our little, <clears throat> we made our little flyers, a little, yeah. little uh, marketing Super things. Mix. And we ended up, I don't know if you remember this, but we ended up getting a, I got a call from Sonny Joe White in Boston. Oh, and yeah. we, we were on, we were right. on Kiss 108 in Boston, which was like, that was like gold. Because yeah. once, once you get a, a market like that, you now, uh, because we gave the show to them for free. We made our money by the advertising that went into the show. So you, how, how that's, did, that's syndication works that way. The, the, the station will take, take a program <clears throat> that they can probably not get anywhere else. And it was really high, 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 uh, highly polished. Uh, program mixing one song to another and chris did most of the production and uh uh we would add advertising national advertising we had clearasil and at&t all these big give me a break yeah unbelievable Um, we had and then we ended up and then another thing that freaked me out it it was just it was exploding when we got the call from john garabinian to come to his house correct yeah i don't know if you know who john garabinian is but he's a, a legend in, uh, Open in the, House Party. In the radio industry. He has a show called Open House Party. Been going for many, many years. I think he retired recently. He did. But we, he took us to his house, and he has an airport in the backyard where he flies in celebrities to do his, 
his show live from his house in his basement, I believe, and uh, said he wants to be part. He wanted part of our show. He wanted to. Uh, he pretty much wanted to take it over. When we look back at it now, yeah. Uh, uh, it, so, but it got us on so many other stations. We were on, uh, and then we also got on Armed Forces Radio, which we we were at some point we were at six over six hundred radio stations uh, playing our our mixes, and we had we we broke them down into a top forty mix, a, an urban mix. A, it was crazy. Old, it was just crazy mix. Yeah, it was great. That's. That is an insane story. And then, and then what, what killed our syndication business was Colin Powell's son, I think it was Michael Powell, was the head of the FCC. And he said, all right, companies can now own more than one radio station in each market and then Clear Channel and, and a couple other oh, that corporations. Hurt. That changed the whole texture of radio. Bought all the stations and all the big markets and decided no more outside programming. And that's what we were, is outside programming. Right. And it just killed it. Yeah. And now, I mean, that hurt, that hurt the radio industry in many ways because even uh, on-air jocks are, are scarce. Uh, the, the station KISS that I used to work for, I believe they have a morning show, and that's it. Everything else is, is people that work for Clear Channel that have a studio in their basement, and they do the voice work for the show, and they just upload it to KISS, and it sounds like there's a live jock at the station, but there's not. And a lot of stations run that way now. Takes out all the personality out of the radio stations. Wow. But anyway. Yeah. That's rough. <laughs> it yeah. really is. Um, now, did you, I don't know if this was you guys together or Chris, um, just you, but I heard uh, something about an, an MTV CD? Yes. Okay. An album? Well, we did many. I did, did, I did about like maybe 15 of them for MTV at the time, and that was kind of a funny story because when you are in radio and you have a show like we had, rate, record companies are constantly, uh, we, I would spend half the day opening up records and having to listen to records and CDs. Well, not to mention you were the music director at KISS, too. But I was also the music director at KISS, and that helped as well. But, uh, so we were kind of influential. We, we, if we play a song on our show, they're going to sell records. So they're constantly getting you to try it. They'll take you out to dinner. They've taken us to the Grammys. They've done everything to... Uh, uh, you know, to smooth us without giving us money, which is illegal yeah, and against the law. But they do everything but that. Dinners, flights to uh, you know, beautiful places. And uh, so I remember the MTV Party to Go series came out. And MTV was really hot back then. They had a show called Club MTV, and they turned that into the, these CDs. And the CDs made money. They, half of it went to charity. And uh, I remember the first one came out, and it was horrible. It was really bad. <laughs> I mean, because we talk about the art of beat mixing, and right. they, 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 were, they had train wrecks. If you listen to volume one, volume two, they were at... So I remember calling the radio the record company up, and I thought, I thought they were going like, to you know, laugh at us and say, you know, you know, we'll take care of this. But he said, I'll tell you what, we have a couple of DJs that, that also said the same thing, and here are the songs for the next one. We want you to mix it and give it to us, and we're going to use whoever... Uh, gives us the best mix. So I put it together, and I, I sent it to them, and I got a call one day saying, we're, we're going to use your mix. We're going to use your mix. We want you to change a couple of things because they wanted, they, they ended up making it very difficult uh, because they wanted certain songs to be at the beginning. They wanted some power records to be at the beginning because people read the tracks. There's all sorts of, you know, behind, the, they read the tracks, they want to see a couple of hits up front and so on and so forth. So remix it the way they wanted to. 
And they came back like 15 or 16 times after that. And it was pretty, I have to say, it was, it was money that I wasn't used to either at the time. Being young, you know, getting a big fat check after doing those was kind of fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed the heck out of that. <clears throat> so that was, that was fantastic. And uh, the whole Grammy thing, they also got me, because they sent me to a couple of Grammys, uh, that got me. I really wanted to go to the Grammys all the time. And I remember one year talking to a record guy saying, I really want to go to the, he goes, you, you, you're now, you know, you're, you're a, a remixer. You, you can apply for a, being a voting member of the Grammys. So I applied to be, a, and I, all of a sudden I'm a voting member and I can go to the Grammys anytime I want. And so, is that still? If I pay my dues, I, <laughs> uh, because when I got out of it, I started not paying attention to the music. So when I get the ballot in, I'd look at the ballot and get, I, I don't know what I'm voting for anymore. Right. Uh, you know, uh, it was just, uh, so I, I had to kind of sneak out of it. But I'm, I'm kind of interested in getting back in it again. Uh, uh, so maybe someday I'll do it again, just to be able to go. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so we are almost at about time, which has just flown by. And um, this is a great story about how, you know, some nightclubs in Mesquamica Beach led to you guys having a syndicated radio show in Japan and all around the country and, you know, being a voting member of the Grammys. Like, this is an insane story, and I wish that this show was like an hour and a half um, (laughs) so that I could talk to you guys more about it. Uh, Would you guys want to come back sometime? We'd do that. Sure. Sure. This is fun. If anyone cares. (laughs) <laughs> People are going to care. This is the best one yet. Uh, so obviously, um, you know, Chris, I know that you've uh, been involved a lot uh, helping Caswell doing stuff for the NBA for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, all of the footage that anybody's ever seen for the NBA for the Spring Fest and Fall Fest commercials is shot by Chris. And um, we actually used, uh, my partner and I used... Um, some of your footage once from Springfest to yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. Um, you owe me a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> it was for Spring. It was for the NBA. Oh, okay, all right. It wasn't for us. We didn't make any more money off of that. <laughs> it was. It was. We were like, uh, Caswell wanted us to make a commercial for it. We were like, okay, we don't have any footage. You know, we were like, oh, Chris has great footage, of the rides and kids, and that's great. Um, so what are you guys, uh, quickly, this episode can be a little long. What are you guys up to now? Well, we, we actually t- are both in the same career right now. We're doing video production. Uh, we, we do a lot, to, and, and the editing of the music uh, helps a lot in our you know, editing videos together. Uh, we do a lot of weddings and corporate. Mike, say something. You're doing the talking here. <laughs> yeah, come on, Mike. Well, like you said, we do a lot of weddings, a lot of corporate work. Um, Chris does a lot more corporate work with, you know, making training tapes and product demonstrations and stuff like that. I'm just starting to get into actually uh, at the end of this month, we're shooting a uh, pilot for HDTV down in Waco, Texas. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, Mesquamacit got us all these gigs all along our life path. It's really, really awesome. And um, so that's where we're at now. And uh, we both have production companies. Chris... I, so I think Chris gave me a payback. I brought him into the DJ industry, and he brought me into back into the video industry. Although I did 
video way back in the day, but once the digital evolution came around, we, we said, come on back. We and do have great. more stories to tell because I was actually in video at the same time we were DJing back in Musquamacate. I right. worked at the cable TV station. Oh, yeah, we used to do right. a lot of mischievous things back then as well. <laughs> but there was a camera that used to scroll across the, the time, the... You know, the relative humidity. It was a camera. It just kind of moved back and forth, but showed you these meters on, on the wall. And I, I, I can remember it scrolling across, and I would stick my head in it every <laughs> once in a while and tell everyone at this certain time to check it out. Yeah. Ended up getting me in a little trouble back then, but that's okay. <laughs> that's we awesome. had a lot of fun. A lot yeah, of fun. I would love to have you guys back and talk about that. Um, I think that we could have some great conversations about that. Sure. And as somebody who does audio and video and has my own production company and is starting in Nisquamica Beach, uh, hopefully some of your luck uh, rubs off. <laughs> I'm sure it <laughs> is, will. That's all I can say. Um, so no, I mean, I'm, sa- I'm not saying, I'm sure it will, that the luck will rub off on you. You seem to know what you're doing. I like your equipment. I like your the way you, you're running this your podcast. It's awesome. I love listening to it. Thanks, man. I, I, Absolutely. That's a huge compliment. Thank you guys so much. Um, speaking of Nisquamica Beach, though, let me just get in a quick plug before we uh, end in about three weeks, it is time for Musquamica Beach Spring Fest. Three days of fun, May 11th, 12th, and 13th. Go to MusquamicaFestival.org for more information, but there's carnival rides, amusements, food trucks, kids' activities, and more. Friday night, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band will be here. Saturday night, May 12th, Badfinger, starring Joey Mullen, uh, plus Phil Solom from the Rembrandts, which is, of course is the band that um, made the Friends theme song. I'll be there for you. And Sunday, John York of the Birds. So that's a pretty stacked wow. lineup this spring. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Caswell always gets uh, some good uh, acts down there. Hopefully, um, you know, knock on wood, uh, we reached out. Hopefully I'll be talking to some of those people on the podcast, which I'm very excited for. Wow. Um, yeah, I grew up listening to Badfinger and the Birds and stuff, which is... I know I'm 30, and you guys <laughs> cringed at that earlier. Wait but a minute, we grew up listening to that. <laughs> uh, you know, I listened to. Oh, speaking of oldies radio, uh, Mike Michelli that you yes. guys talked about earlier. Yeah, he is on uh, Cool AM in uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. So check that out. Nice. I guess. Well, we'll, we'll yes. give him a plug. Yeah, great guy. Good um, guy. All right, and is there like a a website or anything that people can check you guys out at if they want to, you know, hire you for video production or um well we both have uh you know chrispro.com is one and and uh summerwindweddingfilms uh .com it, is another yeah it, yeah is an, is another one uh, awesome yeah uh well I mine's going to be changed soon mine uh, too <laughs> newport newportfilms.com will eventually be mine cuz we're trying to I'm trying to like market the uh, the Newport area that's where all the rich weddings are so absolutely we, <laughs> so we want to and Mike does a lot of work in Newport as well. Awesome. I have an officer. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, you know making the schlep down to Musquamacate. <laughs> um, it, it was a fantastic podcast. Thank you guys so much. Oh, it's great. Thanks. It was great to relive the memories. Thanks, Ben. All right. Thank you guys, and check out Springfest May 11th through the 13th. For more information on the events and businesses in Musquamacate Beach, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and at Musquamacate.org.